0: The other thing that people who are thinking about investing in the asset class should be thinking about is certainly ESG. Uh, I think that's going to be an even bigger uh, part of our asset class for this year. I mean, last year, we had over 100 billion of supply of ESG bonds. This is coming up from just 40 billion in 2020. So we expect this year to be an even bigger jump. And I think that's the big thing now is everyone's now quite comfortable with ESG analysis and integrating ESG into the funds. And now it's really where um, potential investors will be taking a look under the hood to really see just how green uh, a lot of the credentials of these uh, ESG bonds are.
1: That was Omatunde Lawal, head of Emerging Markets Corporate Debt at Bearings, And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and today we are going deep on emerging markets debt. The conversation that follows with Omotunde Luol is really a crash course in the outlook for EMD in 2022. We discuss why the asset class underperformed last year, how Omicron is impacting the outlook, why the path for China has become much less clear and where the team is seeing the most value today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Please enjoy this conversation with Oma Tunde Lawal. All right, Tunde Lawal, thank you so much for joining me from London today.
0: Thank you, Greg, for having me again.
1: I am excited to have you again. You're a multi-time guest here on Streaming Income. Uh, and there's a reason why we keep coming back to you. is because we get so many great insights from you. So um, we're talking about EM debt today. And uh, I want to spend the bulk of this conversation talking about what's next, what lies ahead in 2022. But maybe uh, before we look forward, we can look back. So if you wouldn't mind just uh, giving us a refresh on How emerging markets performed last year, 2021? I know it was a bit of a more difficult year probably than usual, um, but but what kind of really drove uh, performance and got us to where we are today?
0: So... 2021 will definitely go down in history for me as one of the most eventful years in the asset class to date. I mean, there was no shortage of surprises. We kicked off the year quite early on with volatility in Turkey, with uh, President Erdogan uh, abruptly firing the central bank governor on a Friday night in April. And from there on, you know, we had, you know, we came into the office on the Monday to face huge amounts of volatility in Turkey. And then we had elections in Peru, where you had a very radical uh, candidate who ascended to the presidential seat. You had a constitutional referendum in Chile. You had the downgrade of Colombia uh, to high yield. You had volatility in Brazil during the year from um Lula uh, being released from jail with his conviction being overturned and the likelihood that he could uh, become the next Brazilian president. And then you had the huge amounts of volatility in China. I mean, where do we begin from with the China volatility last year? It came through in all manners, all sectors. Nobody was spared. It went through the TMT sector, the education sector, the consumer sector. Uh, But it was the real estate sector that really felt the brunt of it. And that's been going on um, with Uh, a doubling down by the government of trying to reduce leverage within the sector. And that's been causing a liquidity crunch in that system um, since about July, which culminated in the largest default that's happened uh, for the Chinese high yield issuer, which was Evergrande. Evergrande is the largest privately owned real estate company, defaulted officially in December, after having mm. sort of limped along through September using grace periods on on its debt, so th- there was no shortage of uh, volatility. And of course, you know, right right at the end of the year, you had Turkey coming back for a part two, where the Turkish lira actually went to a high of almost <laughs> eighteen right before Christmas. So, you know, EM e- e- participants, I think, uh, EM investors have, have had a very eventful ride in twenty twenty one.
1: You earned your Christmas break this year. That's uh, fair to say, I right? I
0: certainly felt I needed it by the time it came around.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's obviously a tremendous amount of uh, activity to to follow and to try to navigate through from an investment portfolio standpoint. And of course, with the context behind all of that, uh, the world's still dealing with a global pandemic. And so, Maybe that's where I'd like to go next is to talk a little bit about how EMs are kind of handling the pandemic, um, whether that's different from DMs or not. Um, so, where are we today from a pandemic standpoint when when it comes to emerging markets?
0: I think twenty twenty two is really the year where we see uh, more progress in terms of emerging market vaccination programs and booster programs, and I think that's sort of going to help shape how the reactions to Omicron and any other variants that come through in 2022. As far as it relates to Omicron specifically, we haven't really seen, apart from China, which is operating a zero COVID policy, most of the other EMs are being quite measured um, in their approach so far. They're using a combination of um, curfews, restrictions after a certain time of day and quarantine rules to, to sort of manage the Omicron spread so far.
1: And and are you seeing still a big impact when it comes to travel and tourism? I know that can be a pretty big industry depending on the market that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, so for EM, I think apart from China and Hong Kong, where it's really hard in terms of that, you know, they're maintaining sort of strict border controls, uh, what we're seeing is a lot of the other countries subject to testing requirements and uh, quarantine rules and things like that, a lot of EM countries remain open for business. The big tourist uh, places like Thailand, for example, at some point during 2021, they did reopen the borders to tourists uh, and scrapped the need for quarantine. Although quite recently, they've brought that back because of Omicron in terms of um, quarantine and rules, but it's still in Phuket. You you know, you you could still sort of go there. So there are countries that you can go. People are still moving around. It's just subject to some restrictions.
1: You mentioned China and their zero COVID uh, policy. Let's talk a little bit about China because that is, uh, it's it's such a it's such an important uh, component of the picture for emerging markets any year, but it feels like maybe even more so uh, this year. And I know there's there's you know both things that are uh, you know positive and, and giving you you know a little more hope um, that things could could improve going forward. And there's and there's things that are maybe holding back. So tell me about you know how the team is assessing the economic outlook for for China at this point.
0: I'd say sort of following on from the earlier comment that China obviously caused a a huge amount of volatility last year, there seems to be some sort of change or reform underfoot in China, which has seen a series of regulatory crackdowns on certain sectors and and just a slight shift in where the policy priorities lie. Uh, We saw that sort of kick off some point sort of at the start of the year with Alibaba and the fines that were imposed on them and that sort of gave way to a bigger antitrust investigation and sort of crackdown on the tech sector. That then sort of migrated further into the property sector, which had already seen some tightening measures and then that sort of tightened further. In the year, and then we saw the crackdown on sort of consumer apps and data in that big war on big data between US and China, um, and then culminated in the crackdown on the education sector right about July. And then since then, we've continued to see that sort of headline noise through China as the property sector's um, liquidity crunch has reverberated through the economy and led to uh, a much larger uh, sort of slowdown as it were. And, and that seems to have continued more into 2022. I think the the previous thesis around China was, you know, th- there would always be growth of some sort, and they would always sort of do what it took to generate that growth. But it certainly seems that the priority has changed, and they've de-emphasized that growth at the sake of growth. And it seems the emphasis is now really about the quality of that growth. And so we are seeing that h- historical sectors like real estate, where it it is the engine of growth. I mean, it contributes about 28% of GDP growth and about 26% of urban employment. That typically would have been the engine to go to to stimulate growth but it seems that the government is quite reluctant to use that tool and if anything they they seem to be trying to deleverage that sector particularly and so that's causing a bit more of a drag to growth expectations for China with I think the base case out there is China potentially grows five percent in 2022 with a lot of sell-side analysts suggesting that probably is going to grow a lot lower than that.
1: So that, that's a really interesting kind of inflection point potentially. So if you think that is the case and you think maybe there's been a transition from, uh, uh, you know, growth at all, all costs, uh, to use a, a kind of blunt phrase, to, you know, as you say, you know, more focused on co- the quality of the growth, as a long-term debt investor, uh, whether you're talking about corporates, sovereigns, right. uh, you know, any of the EM debt investment avenues... Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing?
0: Well, it depends how you look at it. I think, you know, from the overall perspective of uh, how China is linked to the rest of EM and the rest of the world, um, uh, a pronounced or a bigger than expected slowdown in China certainly reverberates around the rest of the world. Um, you know, China is a big consumer of commodities and, uh, you know, about a third of the commodity uh, demand in China is consumed within the real estate sector. So, if you have a real estate sector that's going to be down 10, 15% uh, in, in, a, sort of in a hypothetical scenario, that has a knock on impact on commodity demand, which ergo has a knock on impact on other economies. Um, and then, um, this sort of zero COVID policy that they are operating as well, that has some impact on production, which has a, a, some impact on inflationary pressures as well. So, you know, there, there are all these consequences to the things about it in terms of China but them focusing more on the quality of growth aspect of things I'd say that as a long-term investor yes the deleveraging and the crackdowns that are going on at the moment is very painful however I still remain anchored around the fact that the real estate sector in itself is very strategic to the economy and it's unlikely they would allow it to implode and so yes there will have to be a culling of the weak um, segments of that sector but You should have some survivors and those survivors, in my view, in the longer term, you would be in a better position investing in those survivors. And so that's really the focus of the team is really focusing on identifying who the likely survivors would be in that sector because the sector has a need to exist and it's extremely
1: strategic. So perhaps some short term pain for uh, investors as, as China you know, shifts more towards this longer-term focus on this more sustainable uh, growth path. But I, but I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of what you said as investors trying to pick the long-term winners and the long-term survivors um, in this space.
0: Uh, I just might add there, I think the other thing is I think the, the market is also grappling with sort of looking back to history for data points and clues as to how the Chinese government's reaction will be in the current environment. And I think historically, when you've seen this sort of bouts of deleveraging, we've expected a policy response a lot sooner. And this time around the policy response has taken a little bit longer to come through. And I think that's where you're then getting, you know, a loss of market confidence and the sort of elevated risk that is there a policy error risk in China as well. But again, you have to come back to the fundamentals and you have to come back to the data about the sector itself, how strategic it is and what the biggest systemic risks they would be running would be uh, with that sector.
1: That, that's a really great point. Coming back to the fundamentals, and I know that that's what your team is doing uh, kind of every day. So um, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, how about if we look more broadly uh, outside of China and we look at the rest of the EMD world? So we've got, you know, we've talked about China. We've talked a little bit about um, the state of the, the pandemic. Uh, obviously, we've got some other big forces going on in terms of Inflation uh, has really picked up, especially notable in developed markets like the U.S., where we just recently printed a seven percent CPI number. So we've got that. We've got you know the Fed under a lot of pressure to raise rates. So within the context of all this stuff, plus a number of the geopolitical risks, of course, that you mentioned up front, within the context of all of that, I mean, what what is looking? Attractive to you today across the EM universe. And I know that, you know, obviously your specialty is EM corporate. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Um, But maybe even if you could mention some of the parts of the sovereign and local um, universes that we like or don't like today, that would be great to hear.
0: Okay. So, good question. In the context of rates going up in the US and the inflation, which has been foremost in everyone's mind. I mean, every single conversation everyone has is about inflation. Uh, EMs have been, you know, they they just like the developed markets are sort of seeing uh, high inflationary pressures as well, no doubt. And you're seeing EM central banks have been responding at least since 2021 have been hiking rates. You've seen a, a lot of the EM central banks, um, the most aggressive has been Brazil so far, where in 2021, they hiked multiple times, uh, trying to sort of keep in, uh, on top of the inflationary pressures. You see Mexico hike, uh, most of the Latam economies, the Asian economies all hiking, Chile hiked, I think yesterday, is um, hiking. So, so all the EM central banks have been hiking. So it was sort of, Preempting the sort of Fed move as well. So th- there's been a bit of cushion built in there against those inflationary pressures uh, within EM. In terms of the corporate specifically, um, yes, we are starting to see sort of comment out of the issuers, especially in the third to fourth quarter of 2021, talking about higher inflationary pressures. But, uh, you know, by and large, the EM corporate universe that we speak to, they seem quite sanguine about their ability to pass through price increases to recoup this um higher cost uh pressures that they see some of them expect that they will have the ability to cut costs within their cost base to absorb some of this inflationary impact so it seems to be a bit of a mixed bag depending on um, what sort of sector that you speak to. But but again, I think, you know, everyone again talks about, yes, inflation has gone up, but the expectation also that in the second half of the year, hopefully with base effects, we should start to see inflationary pressures ease somewhat. Some of the supply chain uh, blockages that we had from last year in terms of the chip shortages should sort of abate somewhat. Some of the sort of supply uh, disruptions that we had around um, some of the commodities should abate somewhat as well so we're expecting that perhaps some of those inflationary pressures should sort of ease off a bit uh in the second half of the year in addition to the fact that the corporate issuers should be able to increase prices to absorb this
1: now on on the corporate side are there um you know parts of the rating spectrum that are more attractive or less attractive to you today
0: yes in a rising rate environment yes we do like pockets of em i think um especially within EM corporates, it's an asset class that structurally has much shorter duration anyway. It's a four and a half year duration asset class. And so within that, you know, the preference in a rising rate environment is in the high yield segment of that market, which is running about four years duration. And then you've got Um, short duration products within that subsect, which can give you even shorter duration profile. And then in terms of things that we like, given the current context of the US and the current market environment, I think the commodity sectors and the cyclical sectors are still uh, sort of segments that we like uh, from a sector perspective. And that's because, you know, commodity prices remain at historically elevated levels anyway, albeit at lower levels than 2021, but still higher than historical levels, so still uh, quite attractive. Similarly for the cyclical sectors, I'd say also uh, the TMT sector, the tech sector, I think that's a sector that we like uh, also particularly at the moment given the technological advancements and the sort of hybrid working from home that everyone's doing uh, globally as well. And then obviously from a from a country perspective as well, there are sort of certain countries that we do like because they've got that exposure to the I think um, countries like Ghana, where we've got commodity issuers that we can pick from, we do like those. We've got some of the frontier countries as well, like Uz- Uzbekistan, Georgia, where they're more idiosyncratic stories for us to get comfortable with and get our teeth stuck into. And then places where we're watching for value to appear later in the year um, would be places like Turkey, where it does seem like um, events are Uh, potentially need to get worse before they get better and potentially when that happens you should get uh, better opportunities to take a look same thing with sort of China real estate I think uh, potentially, until you get that sort of policy response or a sort of um, a firmer policy response, I think, then there's opportunities to take a look at uh, potentially um, opportunities there as well. And then places where we are watching are uh, places like Brazil, where they've got the elections uh, later this year in October. Um, being a bit cautious about how much risk we're taking in Brazil going into those elections. And then be quite sort of um, cognizant of the geopolitical risks that you mentioned earlier in places like Ukraine and Russia in terms of position sizing and exposure and what sectors you're taking exposure to as well.
1: And and how about, um, you know, in terms of defaults, so you mentioned the China property sector earlier, which obviously has had some high-profile defaults. But if you look beyond that, if you look at the EM corporate universe overall what are defaults looking like um and then also related to that do you feel like the yield premium that you're earning on average in em corporate debt relative to developed markets is compensating for any uh, risk on that side
0: interestingly actually um EM corporate default rates in 2020 were only 3.5%, so nowhere near the double-digit numbers that anybody sort of assumed at the start of the pandemic. And then in 2021, it was on a really decent track uh, to be below 2% until the China volatility sort of happened. And so we finished the year with default rates uh, in the double digits. But X, China, actually default rates were 1.9%. So hmm, okay. you could see sort of that difference. Um, I think in the China property sector, we had about 16 defaults um, in 2021. Um, and so that really pushed the default rates up.
1: So really heavily concentrated there. But outside of that, it was pretty stable environment.
0: Correct. Outside of that, it was quite stable. Um, and then the expectation for this year, I think it's potentially depends on how... the China property sector situation evolves. I think you've potentially got a few more default candidates uh, to come through, especially in Q1, uh, because there's a bit of a pressure in terms of timing of payables before the Chinese New Year. And so that could cause uh, an additional strain in the ongoing liquidity strain um, in China. And so potentially a few more defaults. But again, I'm expecting you know overall default rates ex-China to stay very manageable and below the sort of 3% level. All things equal, with no Ukraine invasion and, and no other sort of unexpected
1: events, <laughs> all those wild cards. Exactly. But and and then and then how about compared to to developed market? That so if you're looking at high yield issuers in emerging markets versus high yield issuers, let's say in the U.S. I mean, what does that kind of spread differential look like? And do you feel like that's? Uh, I, I'm curious, kind of where that is, like relative to history.
0: Right, so at the moment we're sorry ballpark about a hundred basis points pick up uh, in terms of spread, EM high yield versus US high yield. I think that kind of compares to historical levels around the sort of forty basis points level. So you're still at elevated levels, and and that's sort of. Factoring in a few of the idiosyncratic events that I mentioned that happened last year with Ukraine, with Brazil, with Turkey, and China, and with all these other places, and so that's where we are. From an overall spread perspective, we're still probably around a hundred basis points, give or take, above the previous lows for the asset class. So the previous lows for the asset class we hit were in first quarter of 2018. And right now we're still about 100 basis points above that. So there's potentially within itself as an asset class, there's still spread uh, compression potential against where we were. Uh, historically, and then against developed market as well. Um, And then when you look within the asset class in terms of IG versus high yield, again, the IG portion of the market in terms of spread pickup to US IG is probably somewhere around the 20 basis points um, range, which is again, slightly above uh, historical averages. And when you look at the basis between EM high yield to EM IG, that's still at elevated levels as well. I think uh, historically pre-pandemic, that differential was somewhere, in the sort of low 300s type level. Um, and we're a little bit above that now. So that that shows you that the high yield segment of our market is cheaper than the IG segment. And then the high yield certainly screening cheaper to develop market peers and against its own historical levels.
1: That's a really helpful context. So it's defaults seem like they're pretty manageable, especially outside of the a really concentrated area of China property, and then spreads are, are kind of offering you more, more of a premium than you've seen.
0: I think one of the conversations that we, we've been having, though, this year um, in terms of EM versus DM has certainly been around, you know, what's the risk to the asset class if rates go up in the US more aggressively than the market is expecting? And in that sort of scenario, I think the concern is that you could see outflows out of our asset class and negative impact for the asset class. So that's certainly a risk to be aware of is that, you know, rising rate environment, especially in the US, definitely does put pressure on EM um, as an asset class. But, you know, there are things to consider to that, in my mind, mitigate some of that concern. And uh, one of the big things is, you know, it's, it's unlikely that we get a repeat of the sort of 2013 taper tantrum um for a few different reasons. I think starting point for sovereign and corporate balance sheets is a lot healthier. The corporates uh, are starting with much lower levels of leverage and much higher levels of cash. Similarly, on the sovereign side, current account balances are a lot healthier. So I think the worry that you get that sort of huge outflow out of EM just because rates are going up in the US isn't quite there to the same extent. I would also say that this rate rise cycle has been well telegraphed (laughs) for so long as well. And so you've, you've seen that the corporates and the sovereigns actually have had a huge amount of time to get their refinancing in order. You've seen huge amount of refinancing over the last two years when rates were low, where a lot of the corporates specifically, they've locked in much cheaper funding costs. One of the TMT companies from one of the frontier countries in um, Eastern Europe. They originally came with a bond that had an 11% coupon. They've come back to the market looking to reprint a similar size bond deal actually upsized by $100 million. And they're potentially going to pay something with a six handle. So that's going to be almost 500 basis points of coupon savings. So that in itself provides a cushion for them. Um, And lots of different issuers like that. I mean, last year, for example, was a record year. Supply. We had 530 billion of supply last year alone. So it's been a huge amount of refinancing. So this cushion built into funding costs. Um, a lot of funding has already happened. Higher cash balances, and and so yes, there is a concern um, for the asset class with rates going up in the U.S. But there are some things to consider to that offset that.
1: And and to your point uh, earlier, you know the the duration of. S- certain segments of the EM universe is, is you know, significantly lower Correct. than uh, some of the c- comparatives uh, in developed markets, right? I mean, I know that you you manage a short duration EM strategy, so that would be probably a perfect example.
0: Correct. And, and that gives you sort of three years of duration or less uh, in an asset class, which is tilted to EM high yield, and average coupons uh, within that sort of segment of our market is mid to mid single digits to six, six and a half percent. So you're getting exposure to something that's giving you a pretty decent cushion against rate rises uh, with the good carry that you're going to get, not as sensitive to um, rates as a longer duration product.
1: Makes sense. All right, Tandu. um to wrap up our conversation, I just wanted to ask you kind of what you think is next. So if you look out over the course of 2022, uh, we've obviously talked about a lot of things, China, COVID, rates, inflation, et cetera. Um, you know, what would you be advising uh, investors in the asset class or those considering an allocation to the asset class? What would you be advising them to sort of keep their eye on uh, in the coming year?
0: I, I, everyone's eyes are on the Fed, so that's you know number one priority for for us all, especially fixed income investors. I'd say anyone considering an investment in the asset class definitely thinking and you know having a an idea of where the likely Fed uh, rates rise uh, trajectory goes to and inflationary pressures as well. Uh, that's a big thing: is inflation going to be persistent or is it actually going to recede in the second half of the year? Is it transitory through the second half? Or not, uh, and uh, how are inflation expectations anchored? Are people thinking that the Fed is going to potentially be behind the curve and expectations uh, rapidly get away from them? The other thing that uh, people who are thinking about investing in the asset class should be thinking about is certainly ESG. Uh, I think that's going to be an even bigger uh, part of our asset class for this year. I mean, last year we had over 100 billion of supply of ESG bonds. This is coming up from just. $40 Forty billion in 2020. So we expect this mm. year to be an even bigger jump. And I think that's the big thing now is everyone's now quite comfortable with ESG analysis and integrating ESG into the funds. And now it's really where um, potential investors will be taking a look under the hood to really see just how green uh, a lot of the credentials of these uh, ESG bonds are
1: yeah that makes sense okay. so we'll watch the Fed and we'll watch the continued kind of proliferation of ESG and I think your team has been uh, at the forefront in terms of sharing some great uh, thought leadership on that subject so if you're uh, if you haven't uh, read any of the papers that Tunde and the rest of the uh, EM team at bearings have written, go to bearings under the viewpoints section and check that out've written extensively um, on your process and in the way that you're that you're thinking about ESG so
0: One more thing to add in terms of investors uh, thinking about the asset class is obviously uh, election cycles and things coming up um, within EM Uh, this year. Uh, Brazil is a big uh, market within EM and they've got elections this year. So that's something we're definitely uh, watching out for. And then you've got a new president in Chile, uh, potentially keeping an eye on how things develop from that perspective as well. And then obviously Russia, Ukraine depending on how things evolve there. And, and then just keeping an eye on the knock-on impacts of the continued inflationary pressure. Does that bring more social unrest uh, vis-a-vis what happened in Kazakhstan earlier in the year? So these are the kind of things to have at the back of your mind as a potential investor in the asset class.
1: Okay, so a lot to keep a, to keep an eye on here. Um, Tunde, thank you so much for this update on emerging markets today. I look forward to, uh, to catching up with you maybe a little bit later in the year and seeing how things have progressed.
0: Thank you for having me, Greg.
1: Thanks for listening to episode number one of season six of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening.